Heavenly Father, even as we pray these words, these words that are so familiar to us, words that are part of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, they are so packed with power and yet they become so familiar, often we say them without realizing what we are even praying. But Lord, we desperately do need you to lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil and the evil one. We do trust that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and that you are fully capable of doing that. Lord, sanctify us indeed with your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're looking at Psalm 86 as we continue our walk through the Psalms. Specifically through book 3 of the Psalms, which will take us through Psalm 89. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 86. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is God's word. You have a seat. I suspect many of you are like me and that you are a fan of uh, medieval stories, stories that build themselves around those kinds of, of uh, character qualities that we find at least in the romanticized version of the medieval era. So we like the stories of those brave knights who accomplish great and mighty deeds, rescuing damsels in distress, fighting against the great dragons. Is that me? What am I doing? Ah, okay. What's well, not interfering when I'm talking or when I'm not talking? Is that a sign? Stop talking? Anyway, I do love stories that are built around this kind of medieval kind of setting. Uh, the reality is, I'm glad I don't live in the medieval times. It's one thing to romanticize those times, it's another to look at what they were really like. You know, you know one, one example of how they romanticized would come under the King Arthur stories. 
You'll recall you know, the, many of the stories about King Arthur present him as this virtuous king who has brought around him these also virtuous knights who go about uh, setting damsels free who are in distress and doing great things for the people. You know, the reality is that King Arthur, if he was a person at all, probably lived around the time of 500 and was able to unite the kings who just never could get along to fend off for just a little while longer the Saxons who were trying to invade from the continent. But it was not a time you would have wanted to live. Uh, living under a king in the medieval era was not a pleasant place to be. Kings in the king's era simply owned all of the land. So if you had a patch of land, it wasn't yours. It was something that you would lease from the king. And he was purely at his pleasure to do that for you. And if there was someone else who he found he wanted to favor with that piece of land, well, he had every right to take it from you and assign it to them. The same thing was true if you wanted to get married. Well, guess who had to give his approval to your marriage? The king. Now, I know of many people he didn't bother to oversee, but for the most part, he had the right to determine actually who you married, whether that was an approving of someone of your interest or arranging it because it provided him some political benefit. So your life was not your own as long as you lived under the rule of a king. And so people generally had kind of two responses to a king. One, they either tried to play his game, tried to appeal to his good nature, tried to do things or present themselves in a way that was perhaps disingenuous of who they really were in order to secure some measure of favor from the king or per, for perhaps most people just simply tried their best to hide in the shadows and not let the king know they even existed so they could go about their life without being bothered by the king's rules. So it wasn't exactly a great relationship that people had with the king. Now there was one exception to that, and that was when the nation was being threatened or in trouble. Then all of a sudden, everybody wanted to know their king. Because the king was the one who had the walls that you could hide behind. The king was the one who had the might and the power to protect you. And so whether you are one who was always trying to gain the king's favor or hide from the king's eyes altogether, both with one voice would come to the king and, and ask for his help, and they had two things that they would appeal to. Two things that they would appeal to. One is they are in need of his protection. And two, he, among all the others, is their king. They are in need, and he is their king. Two very important truths about the nature of someone living under a king. Now, the idea of living under a king, of course, in a country like America is, some, is loathsome to us because we want to be able to go our own way. We want to be able to do our own thing. We don't want to have to submit ourselves to the rules of a king. And while we have successfully revolted against a king and set up our, a government of the people and by the people, so to speak, we still get this idea. We want the benefits of the king without the rule of the king. We want to enjoy the land of the king without the rule of the king. Now, if you want to put this in more modern terms, we can think about our kids and teenagers especially. Teenagers want the benefits of the home and all that it provides, but they don't want the rule of the parents. They want the benefits of the parents, but without the rule of the parents. So we get that whole idea, except when they're in trouble. Then all of a sudden, they come because you are the parent and they are in need. 
and they know that you're going to do something about it. They know that you're going to help. Those two truths, those two simple truths, I am in need and the king is my king, are things I think we often forget when it comes to relating with our God. What the psalmist is doing in this prayer, he's really giving us a model of how we are to approach God. What kind of characteristics are we to have? What kind of truths to which we are to embrace and appeal, or at least understand, if we are to go before God? Those two things. I am poor and needy, and you are my king. I am poor and needy, and you are my king. Not I am worthy, not I've earned your good faith, but no, I am poor and needy, and you are my king. If we could just remember those two things, I think it would really radically change our prayer life. And as a result of that, I think it would greatly affect our relationship with the Lord. And that's what we see happening in this psalm as he goes through this particular prayer. And I want to walk through that, this prayer with you, so we can see how those things play out. One, he says, I am poor and needy. In the opening verses, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. How often do we forget that we are poor and needy? I mean, when you wake up every day, do you think to yourself, oh, I am so poor and needy, or do you simply go about and enjoy the things that are around you? I think we take for granted the fact that we have a roof over our heads. We take for granted the fact that we have food in our pantries, that we have clothes in our closets. We take for granted the fact that we have a job that's something that gives us purpose and things to do and a way in which to spend our life productively. All of these things we just wake up and we just assume are going to be there. And we forget that the reality is that without our king, without our God, we would have none of those things. None of those things. I mean, think of, a, think of, your, think of the, the relationship between the child and the parent. What would the child have without the parent? He would have nothing. If a parent decided not to provide or care for a child, what would happen to that child? The child would die. You know, that is happening, by the way, today. They say, on average, over a million children die because their parents choose to not care for them under abortion. That's the idea. If your parent chooses not to care for you, you will die. And the same is, is true with our relationship to God. If our God chooses not to provide for you or to bless you, you will die. We forget that without God, we have nothing. Without God, we are nothing. I am poor and needy, Lord. That's the first part of his prayer. It's a very opening line. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now, there are times in life when we feel that, right? There are times when we are feeling emotionally distraught or we're feeling financially pinched or we're feeling 
something is wrong in our life, and those are the times when we tend to go to the Lord. In fact, this is kind of the story of Israel. When they found themselves in trouble, that's when they would go to the Lord because they were feeling a measure of their poor and neediness. Because a natural response when you're feeling poor and needy is you go to the king. But oftentimes, we're not feeling the poor and neediness, and so we ignore the king. We kind of drift into those relationships I talked about that medieval, in the medieval era people had with their king. And most often, we just drift away from his presence. Or we try to live in such a way that's earning us a measure of favor from him. Either way, it's a false, it's, it's, a, it's a negative towards our relationship. And the, the irony is that we, that we have this fear that if we submit to the rule of the king, somehow it's going to depress our lives because it's going to take away our choices. We're not going to be able to live the way we want to live. And our lives will suffer as a result. And while that might be true to some degree under many kings, because kings, of course, had their own self-interests in mind, it is not true with regard to our relationship with God. If we just think about Israel, because that, of course, is the Old Testament Israel story. They would drift away from God, forgetting their poor and needy. He would allow trouble to come upon them, feel their poorness and their neediness, and they would come back to God, and He would deliver them. And then they would drift away again. And why did they drift? What, what happened when they drifted away? They found themselves repeatedly, repeatedly in trouble. Disaster. But the reality was, if they had chosen to be faithful to God, to remember their God, what would have happened? Moses spells that out for us in Deuteronomy chapter 28. When he talks about, if you keep these, these covenant obligations, because that's the kind of relationship we have, if you keep these obligations, then there will be no limit to the blessing that will pour out before you. Your fields will produce. Your livestock will multiply. There will be no shortage of water. You will be abounding in every way. All of your enemies will run before you. If you want to go read the specific description of what happens. You see, if you were to live not only looking to God for your help, but also submitting to God in His rule, your life wasn't going to be worse off, which is what we tend to think if we submit to somebody else's authority. It was actually meant to be this great blessing. Not only a blessing to you, but the means through which blessing would flow to all the rest of the nations and the people of the world. That's the reality. So we have to, first of all, go to the Lord remembering every day, I am poor and needy. That's just the reality. I have nothing apart from God. I will die apart from God. Second, second thing is, that he says, you are my king. You are my king. That's the other important truth we have to remember. Now, to, to see exactly what he means by this, or what, what I mean by this, I want to walk through these different verses and show you, because there's a lot of references to God and Lord, but it's not always clear in English what exactly is happening. So, first of all, in verse 2, for example, he says, Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Now, the word there, God, is, is Elohim. Be great, in verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. And then you see the word Lord, and it's an all lowercase. Now, when you see the word Lord in lowercase, 
That's coming from the Hebrew word Adonai, which means master. You know, Lord is in, you're my Lord, you're my master. And then you move on down to verse 6. He says, give ear, O Lord, in all capital letters. Give ear, O Lord, in all capital letters. The same thing you see that in verse 1. When you see the word Lord in all capital letters, in most of our translations, it means it's coming from the personal name of God that he revealed to, the, to, to Moses and Abraham. I am Yahweh. I am your God. I am the God that you will know by name because I have chosen to reveal myself to you uniquely of all the people in the world. So that helps us understand something about this prayer and how he's doing it. Incline your ear, O Lord, Yahweh. He, in other words, he's, he's, I, he's addressing God by his personal name. I'm, spe I'm speaking specifically to you, Yahweh. And then he goes on, Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. You are my God. Now, it's interesting. You say, well, why, why is that a significant phrase? Well, it's interesting. If you go down and look at verse 8, he says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. And that word, that word that says gods, it's actually the exact same Hebrew word, Elohim. Elohim. Carrying with, this, with it this idea that there are other nations who are worshiping other gods. Now, in likelihood, because we've seen this repeated before, the Elohim is referring to some spiritual development, but it doesn't really matter. The point is that he's saying there's other, there's other, whether it's actual spiritual beings or other ideas or other things that people are, worship, that are worshiping around us. And we could simplify it this, that everyone is worshiping something. Whether it's an identifiable spiritual being, whether it's Elohim as in Yahweh, the personal God who revealed himself to his people, or it's some other kind of Thing that people are appealing to. But there's a relationship that's there to know who it is your God, as in your Lord, your Master. That's what he's referring to in verse 2, for example. When he says, preserve my life, for I am godly, that's not a reference to because I am somehow worthy. That's not what that word means. The word, it's, it's kind of a broad Hebrew word. The word translated in other places may mean merciful. To the merciful, you show yourself merciful. That's one way. Uh, perhaps the best way is it's loyal. Um, preserve my life for I am loyal. In other words, I have been looking to you as my God. That's what it means. It doesn't mean I'm worthy. It just means I have been looking to you. That's been my method of life. That's the way I have lived my life. Save your servant, and this is where it expounds that, who trusts in you. And even by reference to himself as servant, He's defining an understanding of the kind of relationship he has to God. You are my master, and I am your servant. So when we're remembering this in our prayers, one, I am poor and needy, and you are my God, you're saying, on the one hand, you are my master. It is your rule that I trust to lead me towards the best life. It is your rule rule that I trust to guide me. That's what he's saying here. Uh, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you, o, o Lord, as in O Master, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. 
For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So here we're beginning to see that what is the relationship that exists between this particular king, that is Yahweh, and his people. It's one in which he is uh, abounding in steadfast love, that he will rescue and answer when you call. Now that's important to understand because not all gods are able to do that, by the way. And that's the contrast he begins to make a little bit later on in verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So there's that word again, that Elohim. There's a comparison between God as Elohim and all these other lowercase gods or Elohim or things. They do not have the works or the wonders that God has put on display for his people. And so there's, there's two things that we need to ask ourselves. One is, how do we know who our master is? You may profess as you, you know, read the confession of faith that, yes, we believe in God the Father Almighty and all of those things. We may profess that God, this Yahweh, well, he is my God. But in reality, who is it that you are ultimately appealing to for your life and well-being? What God do you worship? Now, the way that you identified that in the Old Testament era was, well, to what God do you sacrifice? Where do you take your sacrifices? To which altar? Now, I know we don't take animals as sacrifice today to an altar, so we can't say, well, I don't, I don't know what I do there. But you can ask, well, well, what is it that I am giving my tithe to? The first fruits of my money, the first fruits of my time, the first fruits of my energy. Where does that go? Where does that go? It was recently going back through Malachi and thinking through some of the challenges that he gives us and about the way they worship because they would bring their sacrifices to the Lord and wondered why he wouldn't accept them. And the reasons he wouldn't accept them because they were not bringing their first fruits, they were bringing their last fruits. They were bringing their leftovers. So while, yes, technically they had a sacrifice before the Lord, it wasn't the sacrifice that indicated you are the one I'm trusting in. I have to keep the best because I have to sacrifice that for the true thing that is my master. Whether it's my own comfort, whether it's my own trying to provide for myself, whatever it might be. So where does the lion's share of your time and treasure go? You know, the old adage, follow the money and it will show you what it is that you really, truly worship. What is it that you bow to? What is it that you worship? I'm going to give a, I, I know I, I pick on this just because it's super easy to pick on. I'm really not trying to make anyone feel guilty or anything, but, you know, if guilt happens, so be it. Um, when you think about worship, you know, God sets apart one day among seven to call his own for you to stop and remember that I am God. And that's worked itself out in the sense of coming together as God's people to worship. And Sunday morning is the time when we think about that. And so often, Sunday morning gets easily sacrificed for other things. So it's an easy thing to pick on. You know, I, I see in, in our modern day culture, it's very common 
that families will in, in, will in some ways raise up their kids and make idols out of them by enrolling them in all kinds of things that they think will be good for those children, whether it's you know, baseball or soccer or football or swimming or some other sport or some other event, who says, well, we're going to practice or we're going to have games and they're always going to be on Sundays. So on those days that there are games, you know, they sacrifice their Sunday mornings for those things. Now, if you ask those families, they would certainly not say, oh, no, I worship God. God is my God. But the reality is they're giving their, their first priority of where their time goes to what this coach says they need to do. So without realizing it, they have, an they have answered the question, where am I looking to for life and well-being? I'm looking here rather than here. So it's kind of an exposure. Now, I don't mean to, to say that to make anyone feel guilty. The point, the reason I want to say that is because if you are not realizing giving your first fruit to your sacrifice to some other God, where well, you are ultimately going to get from that God what he can give. And what the psalmist is doing here by showing, by going forward and saying, there, are, uh, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours, in verse 8. And in verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. You alone have the works to show what you can do. And he's remembering that. What are the works of God? The works of God would be his creation, his universe, you, me. Those are the works of God. You know, we're Psalm 19, which we're going to go and kind of reflect upon at the Davis Mountains as a men in October. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. And the other things he mentions is who does wondrous works? The wonders that, that are on display when he led his people out of the, the great exodus in the Old Testament under Moses. Well, those things, that, that exodus from Egypt is something that all the world, at least the known world at that time, was very much aware of. For when Israel came out and marched into those lands of the Canaanites, they looked and said, this is the people whose God destroyed Egypt, who split the sea. This is the God who performed mighty wonders before all the world to see. What other God can do that? That's the point. He's saying there are no other gods can do those things. So what is it that your God, if you're bowing before one of these other gods without realizing it can do for you, ultimately the only thing they can give you is death, is emptiness, because they will continue to take and take and take and take what you give without anything substantial to give you back. So it might be a slow drip to death, but that's where it ultimately leads. So when, our, when we pray, the attitude we have is, one, I am poor and needy, and God, you are my king. Now, the great thing about that, when it comes to the Lord, is that it leads to a real change of the heart. It, 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 it impacts the, the prayer, in this case, so deeply that he's referencing his own soul. That's not something that you would reference with regard to these other gods. But if you'll notice that he says that a, a number of times in this psalm, when he's talking about 
the joy of his soul. You have deli- in verse 13, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And in verse 12, I says, I give thanks to you, Lord, my God, with my whole heart. With my whole heart. Is the idea, is the reference here. That there is something that happens when we give it to the, our God. And you think, well, why is that? Why is that? He continues to refer to some track record of God as he, as he goes through this psalm. He says, and the reason for his prayer. In verse 7, for example, In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. Verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. These are not the attributes of the other gods of the nations. They're not abounding in steadfast love. They're not good and forgiving. They're not able to answer in the day of trouble. You see, these things are unique to this particular God. So that the more that you go to the Lord with these attitudes that I am poor and needy and you are my king and you see him deliver and answer, deliver and answer, it has a way of little by little winning over your heart. So whereas in those medieval times your relationship to the king was very tenuous, remember, you reluctantly accepted his help but you preferred to just hide from him, or to try to win his graces by doing things that you thought would appease him. In either case, it kind of left your heart in despising the God that you, or the king that you sought to to be under. And here in which, what you see is the very opposite. It's not a despising of the heart, but it's a captivating of the heart. So if you want to think about the two words in contrast, it captivates rather than corrupts your heart with relation to God. Now, as in a lot of psalms, there's a lot of framing of the way that he's praying, and you wonder, well, what actually triggered the prayer in the first place? What actually triggered the prayer? And what you don't find that in this psalm until towards the end. For he says, down in verse 14, he begins. This is where we find out why he's praying this prayer. O oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. That's the situation. Now, he doesn't specify what historical situation this was, this was referencing, and I'm not exactly sure either. If I had to take a guess, I, would, I might say under King Saul... Because King Saul was one who was chasing David around. He was an insolent man, not acknowledging the fact that David was God's anointed, continually trying to chase him around and kill him. So that's this, if that's the scenario, the situation that causes the rise of this prayer, what's interesting is most of the psalms are structured where the highlight of the prayer happens right in the middle. The real climax of the prayer is in the middle. And you think about, well, what is in the middle of this prayer? What is the climax of what the psalmist is truly, ultimately after? And I want you to look at that in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. 
that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That, in essence, the climax of the ultimate part of the prayer. So while he is physically in real danger, the thing that is most pressing upon his heart that he wants God to do is not to rescue him, but to teach him to walk in his ways, to give thanks with his whole heart. Isn't that fascinating? How do you get to the point where when you're in dire straits and needs and you go before your king for help, that the more pressing thing that you want from your king is not for him to deliver you from the enemy, but to teach you how to walk in his ways. Would you ever say that to another king? Can you imagine a citizen in a medieval era going before the king when an enemy is approaching and say, King, would you just teach me to walk in your ways? Would you captivate my heart? No, that doesn't happen. But it's saying something, I think, about the effect of living in relationship to this God in this way. As David, the writer of the psalm, or at least who's getting credit for this psalm, is walking in such a way as he describes himself, for I am godly, in other words, that I have been trusting in you, I've been looking to you, I've sought to be loyal to looking to you as my God. When you live in that way, it does something to your heart so that your heart simply wants more than anything else to learn how to walk in the ways of this God. Unite my heart to fear the Lord. So, what is our attitude to be in prayer? Number one, I am poor and needy. Do you know that you're poor and needy? Number two, God is my king. God has to be your king. The one to whom you look on a daily basis of how to live this life. And the result of that, the experiential result of that, is a captivating of your heart. So that he becomes more and more your treasure. Now that was, what's fascinating is the Old Testament. And you think, we live in the area of the New Testament. We live in an era where the works of God are far greater on display than they were in the Old Testament. We live in an era where we see that God, who, who went to the very depths of hell in order to secure your soul and to captivate your heart. I find that compelling. What other God that you might worship on this earth would be willing to make such a sacrifice just as a way of demonstrating the trustworthiness of his love for you? So I just want to challenge you this morning not to go out and live better, not to go out and try harder, but to simply remember you are poor and needy and God is your God, is your king and he is more than capable 
satisfying your every need. And he's demonstrated that he won't hold back because he didn't withhold his own son. So I'm encouraging you in your prayers to simply trust him. And I think the result of that is that we end up praying more and more frequently. In fact, I think that might be another measure of how well do you trust the Lord? Well, how often do you go to him in prayer? How active is your prayer life? I think it's a, it's a revelation of the degree of trust. Now, that can be a little convicting, but hopefully at the same time, it's revealing and encouraging to say, oh, wow, I already love the Lord, but how much more can I love the Lord if I would just learn to trust him more and go to him in prayer more? So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are poor and needy. And we desire for you to be our king, to be the one that we look to when we are truly in need, to be the one we trust to guide us through life. Father, we are ever thankful that you sent Jesus Christ to die the death that we deserve to die and to live the life that we were unable to live and yet credit us with that righteousness so that we might be drawn ever close to your presence, that we might have a relationship with you that is absolutely secure. Father, help us to trust you, to desire to walk in your ways, to look to you for answers and for help and for guidance and for hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.